This episode is a supplement to regular Inside Israel news episodes. I'll be discussing background related to current events in Israel and the Middle East. Captain's Log Supplemental. This supplement is part two of a two-part supplemental on the structure of the Israeli government. Uh, in the last part, part one, discussed the uh, court system and the presidency, uh, Israel's ceremonial presidency. Now we'll go on and talk about the Knesset and the cabinet and local governments. I hope you're ready for fun and excitement as we get into the real meat and potatoes of the Israeli government. Right, now we're finally on to the Knesset. Uh, as I've described before, the word Knesset means assembly, community, or community meeting, or meeting place, like uh, the Beit HaKnesset is a way that the synagogue is described sometimes using Hebrew, uh, although we've come to use the Greek term synagogue uh, to describe it. But uh, in Hebrew, we say Beit HaKnesset, uh, the house of, of assembly or gathering, right? So that's what the, the Knesset means. But the Knesset is Israel's parliament. So what is a parliament? What defines uh, this organ of government that is so important to a parliamentary system and what makes it a parliamentary system. A parliament is primarily an electoral body. This is a point that uh, Walter Beget really made very strongly in his works writing about how the British system had changed. The, the point of a parliament, once it is elected, is to choose an executive and to keep that executive in office, in essence. When you elect a parliament, you are electing the government that results from it, the prime minister and the cabinet. Well, in a parliamentary system, that government and that cabinet serve only so long as they have the support in real time of a majority of parliament. So it's like, uh, imagine in America, if our electoral college were combined with the House of Representatives, right? The electoral college would stay in office and could recall the president at any time and replace the president, elect a new president if they so chose. In fact, Walter Beget made that uh, observation, that very observation about our electoral college. He pointed out that Alexander Hamilton missed creating the first parliamentary system by just a hair, because if those electors had just continued to serve in office uh, once chosen and had uh, a power to elect a new president or to uh, vote, uh, issue a vote of confidence against the president, then that would have been a parliament. In the British system, the electoral body arose out of the House of Commons, which is also the lower house of the legislative body. Ultimately, the House of Lords became irrelevant, and I'm not going to talk about that uh, much beyond this. Uh, so a, a parliamentary system requires only a single house, or what is called a unicameral system, uh, as opposed to a bicameral system. In Britain, in the United States, we have two houses, we're bicameral. In Israel, they have a unicameral system, so it's one house. And this one house acts as both a legislative body and an electoral body. Primarily, it's an electoral body. Once it is elected a government, that government does lead the process of generating, drafting, and proposing legislation along with making policy. 
right? So it will, it will do that together, right? So the, the cabinet, the president, the minister of defense, the foreign minister, the minister of justice, these people will meet and they will decide, uh, we want reforms to the judiciary, right? So they will enact that policy and draft any legislation that goes along with it. And once that legislation is drafted, they'll be the people who implement it. Very different structure of government from ours here in the U.S., where the executive and the legislative are separate bodies and they're not accountable to one another. When Parliament elects a prime minister, Parliament is bound to vote for what the prime minister proposes, right? If, if they propose a landmark reform or the budget or what have you, and Parliament does not vote for it, then they're not voting against the budget, they're voting against the prime minister and the cabinet. This is, this is an important difference in parliamentary system. When the budget passes, they're not really voting on the budget, right? So if you're a member of Likud, let's say, and you don't like that there's a line item in the budget, let's say, for uh, sports and recreation spending, right? You, you, if you were in the U.S. Congress, you could vote no on the budget and just say, well, I'm voting no on the budget because there's this line item in the budget that I don't like. But in, because, you know, a separate legislature, that that's your job as a legislator is to vote yes or no on legislation roundly on your own conscience. But um, in, in a parliamentary system, when you vote to elect the prime minister and you've seated a government, if you don't vote for that government's landmark legislation, if you don't vote for the budget, you're not voting against the budget, you're voting against the government. And that's the difference. So often in parliamentary systems, if the budget fails to pass, the government will resign. It's often the case. And I just mentioned, just a bit ago, that in 2014, the government's choice for president was almost defeated. And it was noted at the time that had the Ruby Rivlin gone down, if Mayor Shadrit had been elected president of Israel, that would have caused uh, the government to collapse. Basically, Netanyahu's government would have fallen right then and there. Uh, it went on uh, for many, many more months before it finally broke down and new elections were held. But uh, that, uh, that kind of showed the first cracks in that government. It showed weakness. Okay, so that's the difference. Now, votes of confidence, all right? The parliamentary system was built out of a vote of no confidence against a prime minister. Again, something I won't go into. But the point of a parliamentary system is what Winston Churchill called an accountable ministry. Uh, ministry in the sense that the, the prime minister and, and all of the ministers of the cabinet are accountable to parliament. So if parliament gets the feeling, since they were elected by the people, that while they have are elected to enact a certain agenda, let's say like Israel is going to have a large right block, so we can just generally say that Israelis right now are in the mood for a right wing agenda, generally speaking. If the prime minister is not enacting that kind of agenda, if the prime minister is personally incompetent, if he or she just does not have what it takes to do the job, or if they embrace an unpopular policy, uh, then it is the duty of Parliament to assess whether the Prime Minister is still in keeping with the people, if the Prime Minister is still popular. If the Prime Minister does not maintain the support of the people, it is the job of Parliament to vote no confidence, cause that government to resign, and elect a new government that will have the popularity of the people, or to go to early elections. And this is where we introduce unfixed elections, flexible elections. Um, 
this is this is something fun. So when we have elections here in the United States, we know for a fact that on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November, every even numbered year, we have an election for the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, those that third of the Senate that's up every two years for election and any special elections that are going on and every four years every even numbered year easily divisible by four if you want to go with constitutional language there uh, we have a presidential election we we vote to decide for whom our state should cast their electoral votes but you don't actually vote directly for president you vote to choose electors because we have an electoral college in any case uh, we have those elections at fixed points, right? The president enters into his or her term at noon on January 20th of the odd-numbered year that follows an election year, and that is fixed. That president who is seated will uh, leave office four years later on January 20th at noon. Uh, Congress can move that day around a little bit. Like if it, if it should fall on a Sunday, they can, by law, move it to the Monday afterward. But generally speaking, those dates are set by the Constitution and those are final. The term of the president is fixed. The elections of the president and the House of Representatives and the Senate are fixed by law and they happen regularly, right? If for some reason we should have a special election, right? If a, if a representative resigns in the middle of their two-year term and a special election is held, uh, then that representative who wins will be back on the ballot a year later for re-election because the election happens in November of the even-numbered year regardless, right? We don't, we don't say, well, that person gets two years from that time that they're elected. In a parliamentary system, they hit up to four years from the time of any election. So in 2015, when the election was held that created the last stable serving government under Bibi Netanyahu, uh, that election, once he formed a coalition, meant that Netanyahu could, and his government and that Knesset could sit for up to a maximum of four years. Or the Knesset could decide to dissolve and hold early elections at any time. So let's just say it, in the summer of 2018, Bibi Netanyahu sees the poll numbers and he says, hey, wow, I'm really popular right now. Everybody loves me. Everybody wants me to get another term. And he could say, you know what? We're going to dissolve the Knesset and we're going to hold new elections now, right? Or conversely, in the summer of 2018, let's say he could take a look at polls and say, oh my God, uh, I'm really down. I, this, is, this is terrible. I, I'm never going to get reelected now. I need another six months and I better, you know, do this or that to try to get myself reelected and wait, right? On the other hand, if uh, the members of the Knesset feel that the government is unpopular uh, if they vote the prime minister out and are not able to form a new government or for whatever reason, they can also bring on early elections. Early elections are a good and bad thing. It's always a roll of the dice, right? Sometimes uh, you sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, right? The center-left withdrew from the coalition, as I talked about in 2014, a uh, sh few short months after that presidential election. Yair Lapid left the coalition, and uh, Israel went to early elections, early elections that produced a more right-wing government, as I had predicted. In any case, that, um, that roll of the dice was an opportunity. The left thought that they had the popular position to form together a group of center-right and center-left parties and the traditional left in Israel and form a new government that would defeat Bibi Netanyahu. 
but they, they miscalculated and it backfired. Bibi Netanyahu instead was able to win the election and serve for, for full four years. So whenever an election is held, uh, we're having one here in March of, of 2021, that means that if a government is able to be formed, let's just say Bibi is able to put together a, a coalition somehow, and uh, parties are willing to work with him, uh, that he's able to put together a coalition, he can take that uh, up to March of uh, 2025. Right? There'll have to be an election sometime between 2021 and 2025. He can go up to the full four years. But like I said, if, if let's say in the, in the summer of 2024, he sees that his poll numbers are looking better then for whatever he wants to do next, let's say he's chosen a successor or what have you, and that's all looking good for him, he might choose to hold the election then. Uh, or let's say two years into his term in 2023, uh, one of the parties in the coalition feels like it's not getting uh, its agenda passed and is starting to feel the strain. Let's say uh, their, their constituents are not happy with the government. They feel like the government's unpopular. That party could leave the coalition. And if he's not able to patch up a coalition to bring in enough parties to have a majority, then that would bring on new elections, right? So that is, in essence, how the Knesset works. And because it's a multi-party proportional system and parties run lists of candidates instead of having single-member elective districts based on a geographic boundary like we have here in the U.S. and people vote, voters cast their votes for political parties. You, know, you vote for Likud, not for Bibi, or any particular candidate. You vote, uh, or you can vote for Yisrael Betenu, or you can vote for Yamina, or you can vote for Yeshatid or Labor, but you cannot vote for any individual candidate. Uh, that's the, the sort of coalition-building game that the, the Knesset plays. And they can serve out a full four-year term, or they might go to early elections, and who knows. Right now, voters are feeling a little annoyed. This is the fourth election they've held. And people are pointing figures, fingers all over the place. Oh, Bibi Netanyahu just wants to stay in power, right? He has all the benefits of office, and he just wants to stay in power. Or, conversely, you can cast the same blame on those who refuse to form a government with him. They are likewise refusing to form a government, and they are also part of the problem that Israel doesn't have a new government. So you, can, you cast blame on either side, depending on your perspective. But at the end of the day, this is the fourth election in two years, and voters are getting tired of voting. So it would be very reasonable for the politicians who are running to find some way to form some kind of government. Uh, it's incumbent upon them. If they don't, they may find an electorate that is angry enough to uh, start punishing people. Uh, they're already punishing Benny Gantz for joining the coalition with Bibi Netanyahu. Could they punish center-right parties for, phasing, for refusing to join a coalition with Bibi Netanyahu? Uh, Yisrael Betenu, who have uh, joined that group that are refusing to join, the, uh, join in a, a government with Netanyahu, they're way down in the polls. Uh, center-right voters are not too happy with that. Meanwhile, Gidon Sa'ar, who's running as an alternative to Bibi, is up at you know, 13, 14 seats. So... Just depends on which voting demographic you're reaching out to and how the voters are feeling. It bears a mention that the cabinet itself is something of a separate organ of government, and so I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to try to be brief. I've already gone uh, much longer than I intended in this supplement describing the organs of the Israeli government. When a coalition is formed, you, you want to reach what we call in parliamentary uh, language, the, the language we use to talk about these things, the minimum majority coalition or MMC. 
the minimum majority coalition allows you to have a majority with the smallest number of parties in the coalition. Some political systems, like say Sweden, they like to get 80% of the political parties, you know, representing you know 80% of the voters uh, into the coalition. But at the end of the day, uh, most political systems want to get to a majority the shortest way possible, and that's fairly reasonable because some of the things you have to do to form a coalition, like dole out cabinet seats. Uh, can get monotonous, right? If I'm Bibi Netanyahu and I'm the head of Likud, the largest party that's going to sit in a government led by Likud, I'm going to want most of the cabinet jobs for my party. I want to reward uh, the people who work in my party, who are loyal to me and are doing their job keeping me in office. I want those people to hold cabinet seats. Why do I want to give them away to political competitors, right? That would be troublesome, right? So you might imagine that if Bibi Netanyahu, for example, had to invite Gidon Sa'ar into his coalition, what's he going to have to give him? Well, probably at least a rotation in office as prime minister. So he would have to give him, let's say, the, the uh, high-ranking job like defense minister or foreign minister. Foreign minister is like the secretary of state, heads the, the diplomatic mission, and uh, represents Israel uh, with foreign governments. Right? So you would have to give him a high-ranking job like that, and then after two years, you'd have to give him the big job. Right? That's a lot to ask uh, in forming a government. Obviously, Bibi Netanyahu would prefer not to have to give that. He may have to give that uh, deal to Naftali Bennett just to get close to having a majority. Same, same deal, right? same kind of problem. So if he's going to form a coalition, he's going to have to dole out certain cabinet seats. Uh, to different people. And someone might want a very high-ranking cabinet seat like the defense ministry. Someone might, parties might be willing to accept a lower one like ministry of interior or finance minister uh, or minister of sport and recreation, <laughs> culture, right? There, there are a number of different ministries out there and different parties have different goals. So for example, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi parties like to ask for the ministry of interior because it's the minister of interior who controls immigration to Israel an important issue to the ultra-Orthodox, who, for one thing, don't like a lot of converts coming to Israel uh, who are converted by different religious groups that are not as orthodox as they would like them to be, right? Or uh, they might want to reduce the number of secular Jews moving to Israel in favor of more religious Jews who are going to be in their camp, right? So they, that's a job they like to have, is the Ministry of Interior, whereas Someone like Yair Lapid, in order to join the coalition, might demand that for his party because he would want to prevent the Haredi from having it. He would want to have that in the hands of a secular party, just as an example. Okay, The cabinet in Israel is not like uh, the cabinet in the United States. It is not a unitary uh, cabinet. In America, the president is the head of the executive, which means the president nominates the secretaries, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, so on and so forth, who are confirmed by the Senate. But the President can fire those people on his or her discretion, right? The President is uh, trying to get something done diplomatically and the Secretary of State is refusing to enact his or her policies. The President can simply fire the Secretary of State and appoint someone else, right? That is not uh, the case in most parliamentary systems. It's a little bit more collegial. Now, in Britain, they do have a more central cabinet system where, in essence, the prime minister kind of heads the cabinet, and the prime minister can hire and fire ministers uh, a little bit more at will, as long as the prime minister maintains the support of the majority, obviously. 
But you also have to think about there are high-ranking party officials who serve in those posts, so you got to be careful uh, whom you fire. Um, and sometimes, as happened to Margaret Thatcher in 1991, when a prominent member of the cabinet leaves his position, it can weaken the prime minister's uh, position and ultimately led to her ouster uh, in leadership contest that year. So uh, the cabinet is a little bit different than we think of a cabinet uh, in the United States. In Israel, the cabinet is more purely collegial. While the prime minister has some individual powers, certainly certain kinds of emergency powers, uh, especially when it comes to defense and what have you, generally speaking, the cabinet is an executive body, like a committee, and the cabinet will vote on things and vote on policies, and you have to get the support of a majority of the cabinet in order to do things. It's not as simple as the prime minister, prime minister says, we're gonna engage in this diplomatic initiative, and everybody's like, okay, well, how do we get that done? right? Like it would be in the President of the United States, or a little bit more like that with the Prime Minister in the UK, where uh, Boris Johnson can sit down in front of his cabinet and uh, he can say, here's, here's the general direction I want to go, what do you think? Uh, Bibi Netanyahu sits in front of his cabinet and says, this is the direction I think we should go, um, do, you know, how, and, and there'll be some discussion after that, and then they'll vote on it, and they may vote against him. And they say, well, we don't want to go that direction. We want to go do this other thing, right? It's a collegial cabinet. So it's not as simple as the prime minister leading the government. The prime minister is more of a chairperson of a committee of executives who represent the leaders of these different political parties that form the coalition. And so the cabinet is, is a collegial body where more than one person is generally involved in making decisions uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And there are some pros and cons to that. Uh, the pros are that uh, Israel often has some of its best political minds uh, together in that room when they have to make policies. And of course, some of the other best political minds who are sitting in opposition are going to criticize those policies because they're gonna sit there and say, well, uh, the government decided to do X and we would have done Y, which, you know, next time there's an election, if you preferred Y, you'll vote for the opposition party, right? Um, <clears throat> but it has generally worked out pretty reasonably for them in the making, you know, in making decisions and uh, in making sound executive uh, governance, by executive policy making, right? But it's not directed by one person. However, who that person is as prime minister is very, very important. And a, a side effect of the collegial cabinet is that the line of succession hasn't always been clear. And uh, Israel has had uh, some challenges with that. When Ariel Sharon, for example, had his strokes, it wasn't entirely clear who should serve as prime minister. There was a deputy prime minister, technically, somewhat like the vice president of the United States. This is an empty office that has no authority. And the person who held that office at the time, Dalia Itzik, was not someone that anyone wanted to be prime minister. This was a job that was doled out to her to ameliorate, ameliorate her and keep her support on board for the government. But uh, as part of the coalition agreement, but it was not, uh, she was not the person who was going to succeed. And so ultimately, Israel did draft a line of succession through the cabinet after that. But again, just because you're the deputy prime minister does not necessarily mean you're going to succeed. It might, that might fall to the foreign minister or the defense minister instead. Uh, and that uh, something like the line of succession in the United States, but, but a little, you know, 
a, a little bit more flexible. Obviously, if our president dies, resigns, or is removed from office, then it is the vice president who succeeds. But that's, that's what the 25th Amendment says. It's all kind of spelled out. In Israel, that's a little more flexible. Shout out to listener Jeff, who asked this question, and I wanted to address the question of term limits for the executive. Israel does not have term limits. So he asked, how long can someone serve as prime minister or any member of the cabinet? Uh, for life, until they die, resign, quit, or are voted no confidence, voted out of office. Uh, the fact is, uh, there is no term limit on anyone serving in the Knesset. Israel's founding prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, served cumulatively over 13 years as prime minister, but uh, that was the record up until recently when Bibi Netanyahu just surpassed him. Uh, Bibi, of course, having served over three years as prime minister in the late 90s and now having served over 10 years as prime minister since 2009. So cumulatively, Bibi Netanyahu is now the longest serving prime minister. Other prime ministers have gone a good long time, uh, seven, eight years in office, but have not really been able to rise to the level of uh, David Ben-Gurion or Bibi Netanyahu, both of whom represent unique circumstances in Israel. Ben-Gurion as the founding prime minister and an early leader of Israel, and Bibi Netanyahu as the last of his governing generation uh, holding on to uh, office, and obviously has the popularity to continue to do that. But... There has been a proposal, as I discussed in a previous episode, uh, by Gidon Sa'ar to create an eight-year limit. Basically, that would mean that no prime minister could serve more than eight years in office. Now, how would that be done? As I've mentioned before, amending the basic law, <laughs> that can be done by a, uh, an absolute majority of the Knesset, 61 votes. So if they amend the basic law and create this eight-year limit, in theory, a future prime minister, let's say, Gidon Saar becomes prime minister, and he serves eight years, and he wants to go just a little bit longer. Maybe there have been a couple of early elections, and he figures, hey, I want another year or another two years. Uh, then he could go in, and, and they could, uh, if the coalition has that kind of support, the majority of them could vote to extend that. Uh, generally, term limits are uh, a lack of flexibility in a uh, political system. And I'm going to talk about flexibility in the Israeli system and experimentation here shortly. Uh, it, would, it would be limiting to prevent prime ministers from serving as long as the voters will keep them there. On the other hand, prime ministers who go 12, 13, 14, 15 years in office or more, uh, that's a long time for one person to be at the head of the government. And uh, the old saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, Having a lot of power, not absolute power by any measure, but having a lot of power for a long time uh, in, invested in one person can, can be a bit problematic. And uh, it, eventually it'll be time for a change. Generally speaking, in parliamentary systems, when a prime minister goes over 10 years, they kind of lose their, their luster. And rarely do prime ministers go longer than that. Uh, in Britain, it was the case with both with uh, Maggie Thatcher, who went just 11 years in office, and uh, again with uh, Tony Blair, who went 10. That around 10 years, uh, they, they start to lose their popularity and, and fall out of office. In some parliamentary systems, like Germany, it's not uncommon. <laughs> as it were, for a chancellor to serve 16 years in office. Helmut Kohl 
served uh, 16 years in office, although somewhat unique circumstances because he also led the reunification of Germany in the early 90s uh, toward the end of his third term and uh, continued with that progression through his fourth term. Uh, again, somewhat unique circumstances. And in Germany now, Angela Merkel has gone uh, four terms and is rounding out the end of her fourth uh, 16 years in office. Uh, but to a large extent, the last term was won by her political po opponent, Martin Schulz, committing political suicide. So sometimes uh, this happens in politics that uh, leaders are able to go a long time. But uh, eight years, 10 years, somewhere around there should be uh, about how long people serve uh, in any sort of, uh, I want to say, consecutive uh, holding office as prime minister. Uh, beyond that, uh, who knows? But that really is, in my opinion, again, I'll, I'll claim my biases, that really is something that's up to the voters. Uh, the voters should decide whether someone continues in office. And it could be argued now that we're in our fourth election. Maybe it's time for BB to plan an exit. Uh, with when he can't form a government, uh, although there's a possibility now that he may be able to form one more and, and go two, three, or four more years. Who knows? Uh, at the same time, uh, it could be argued that if you create artificial limits, a good prime minister might leave before the voters want them to. Again, if Gidon Sa'ar comes to office and proves to be the greatest prime minister since sliced bread <laughs> and Israelis love him, then after eight years in office, is he really going to want to quit knowing that he could have had that third term or maybe more? So that's one of those questions that, uh, again, it goes against flexibility, uh, but we'll see. If Gidon Sa'ar is able to put together a coalition, he'll have the opportunity to push that reform. Israel also has a number of local governments. There are six regional councils in Israel that govern large regions. They don't have a lot of power, uh, but they do represent certain regional interests. Uh, but uh, those, like I said, those governments are not incredibly important. Uh, but uh, the leaders who serve in those regional councils for different political parties do have a tendency ultimately to make it to the national party list. So those can be important stepping stones for those who are looking to serve in the party apparatus and get themselves on the ballot to run for Knesset. Likewise, Israel has a number of cities, and those cities and city governments are fairly similar to what you'll see over here. Large cities like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv have directly elected mayors who serve uh, four-year terms in office, and they have city councils that are uh, elected to represent the city, right? And it's something fairly similar. And small cities, small towns have uh, likewise, fairly similar city governments with uh, rotating mayors instead of direct elected mayors. Again, fairly similar to what you'd see here in the United States. Uh, and likewise, responsibilities are fairly similar. Cities maintain the roads and that kind of thing. However, as I've noted, Israel has a national police force, so uh, local authorities do not control law enforcement or have their own police forces or what have you. They just regulate local business practices, uh, plan and lay out roads, streets, and development within their cities and, and things of that nature. My final note here is, as I wrap up talking about the structure of the Israeli government, I want to talk about flexibility and experimentation because it's really important to understand that in Israel. Israel doesn't have a fixed constitution that is difficult to amend like ours here in the U.S., and Israelis have been willing to experiment with different structures of government and propose different things. 
obviously one of the major issues that's out there right now is that Gidon Sa'ar is proposing a decentralization of government authority, the doling out of responsibilities to the local level in a, in a greater quantity. And that is going to raise interesting questions and concerns in both directions. Uh, you know, how responsible are these local governments going to be with that? Uh, but also, uh, to what extent does the national government really have to be involved in every level of government, right? You know, what, you know, do we have to have a national police force? Why can't we have local police forces? That's going to be an interesting debate to hear, and it'll be fascinating to find out who's going to say what about that particular approach. But in terms of structural flexibility, Israelis have been willing to experiment with doing a couple of different things. I mentioned uh, Netanyahu kind of at the last minute before the last presidential election pitched the idea of direct elections for the president or uh, of changing the the election process for the president. So there, there, uh, there's a great greater willingness to entertain such notions in Israel. And there's one particular example I'm going to describe as I wrap things up here. In the late 90s, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, during his first go as prime minister from 1996 to 1999, got caught in a sex scandal. And as a result, uh, he was on the out. And that caused uh, a, a desire for an early election. However, uh, instead of having the regular parliamentary election, Israelis decided to try something different. So the Knesset passed a, an amendment to the basic law allowing for the direct election of the prime minister, what we would call a presidential minister, in essence, in the uh, <laughs> uh, vocabulary of parliamentary government. It's a, it's a prospect that you don't see a lot, uh, a directly elected prime minister who is also accountable to parliament, right, who could, who could face a vote of confidence. Well, uh, in that election, they, they had the general election, had many different candidates. Uh, general Chirac was running, uh, Bibi Netanyahu was running, Ariel Sharon was running to the right of him, and you had uh, Ehud Barak running on the left. And the top two candidates who went on to the runoff were Ehud Barak and Bibi Netanyahu. And Ehud Barak won 55 to 45. So he won a pretty good spread there and was elected prime minister. So he went ahead and formed a government and they did hold parliamentary elections, so there would be a fresh new parliament for him to be the leader of. And uh, Israel went forward with this presidential minister system. Kind of an interesting experiment. What, a, what a, an interesting idea. This is somewhat similar to the way France does things. Uh, briefly, the French will hold a presidential election, and then they'll hold their parliamentary elections afterwards, so that basically whoever wins the presidency the electorate will choose that person's party to serve uh, in parliament and uh, give that president the legislative authority to govern, right, uh, and hold a, uh, to form a government and have a cabinet. Is they, they also have a dual executive, although the, the French presidency has a little bit more power. In any case, so this, this was an interesting notion. The voters would choose a prime minister, the individual prime minister, and then hold elections afterwards to determine who, uh, how the parties uh, are going to, to have their seats and, and elect the Knesset. A couple years later, Ehud Barak's coalition broke up when Shas, the 
uh, Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party left the coalition ostensibly over the question of El Al flights on Shabbat, but the real reason was with uh, Ehud Barak had gone out and negotiated, attempted to negotiate with Yasser Arafat under the Clinton administration, and also met with uh, the young new president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, uh, to talk about the possibility of negotiating an end to conflict with them. Israel offered to give the Golan Heights back uh, as part of that uh, deal, but Syria declined just as the Palestinians declined. But it's what happened afterwards. Uh, Yasser Arafat launched an intifada, a second intifada, a major conflagration. Uh, there were terrorist attacks, and uh, it was a bloody nightmare uh, for the people of Israel. And there was uh, certainly not a fun time there in 2000. There was a nightclub attack I remember in particular very vividly uh, watching on the news. And young youngsters were dancing, and all of a sudden, boom, uh, a homicide bomber killed a number of them. Well, this brought down Ehud Barak's government. He lacked the confidence of the voting population. And so it was decided that direct election of the prime minister would be held. But the Knesset decided that instead of holding a Knesset election, they would just hold an election for prime minister. If Ehud Barak himself had lost the confidence of the voters, then he himself would be the only one on the ballot. And that put a bit of a different taste in everyone's mouth. That, that kind of changed the uh, perception of that approach, of electing the prime minister separately from the Knesset. In that election, Ariel Sharon would prevail as prime minister, and Sharon immediately formed a government and immediately tackled the security issue and uh, answered the voters' concerns about the intifada, and ultimately the intifada fizzled out, having accomplished little. Well. Uh, Ariel Sharon uh, served as prime minister then and then went to elections in 2003 where Likud won a much larger uh, percentage. They ended up with 40 seats ultimately in the Knesset, which is a third of the Knesset, as you can imagine. And that's how Sharon was able to do a number of things, uh, change policy, what have you. Topic for another time. But after the uh, 2001 election where the Knesset was... Uh, was not elected, but the prime minister was, they changed the basic law back and went back to the, the other system for choosing the prime minister, the coalition building system that's in place today, where instead of holding a direct election, the, uh, the Knesset parties recommend whom they would like to see as prime minister, and it's up to the president to use some discretion to give uh, one of those candidates uh, an opportunity to form a government and possibly also another candidate. This is important because just in the autumn, uh, as we were coming on our fourth election, uh, Netanyahu has proposed returning to that notion of having a direct election for prime minister before holding Knesset elections, which could settle the question of who should be prime minister. So that if this election doesn't work out, you may very well see uh, a growing clamor for direct election to settle this particular political dispute of whether Bibi Netanyahu himself should be prime minister. In any case, Israel's willingness to experiment and try new things is a, a value. Uh, Israelis are, are confident in their system that they can try new things, that they can see how they work, and if they don't work out the way anyone thought or they don't like it, they can change back. Uh, but they have been willing to try new things and, and be flexible. 
that experimentation, that the idea that the electorate can then learn from their, uh, their mistakes or uh, make changes or what have you. We, we like doing it this way. We don't like doing it that way. Nobody likes the coalition process building, building process in Israel. Nobody does. But it seems to be the best thing. Uh, they tried direct election of the prime minister, and that didn't work out quite so well. Uh, people, voters just didn't, it wasn't that popular. Voters just didn't approve of it. So this is something that, that Israelis are willing to do. So we may see some changes coming up uh, and some new flexibilities in the Israeli system as uh, Israel tries to sort its way out of its current structural crisis. Uh, there have even been proposals to change the way the Knesset is elected. Uh, Germany, for example, has what's called a mixed parliamentary system where uh, half of the, the Bundestag, the, the lower house, is elected from single member uh, elective districts, which in European parlance is called a mandate. <laughs> we call them districts, they call them mandates. In any case, uh, could Israel see some geographic districts? If that were the case, then it would certainly expand the size of the larger parties uh, and increase the likelihood that, say, Likud, Yeshatid, and, and large parties like that are going to win more seats. So we, who knows? But uh, one of the interesting things about Israel is that the structure is not fixed and there could be uh, changes in the way elections are held forthcoming. With that, I will bring this uh, supplement to a final end conclusion. It, it went a little bit longer than I intended, but I was able to cram in a lot of stuff. So thank you. Lehitrot. Goodbye. <laughs> המשחטות הישנות יעדינו תפוחי